Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome, and come on in and make yourself comfortable. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Rod McDonald. Rod is an internationally renowned shipwreck explorer, undersea adventurer, and best-selling diving author. A pioneer in technical deep-sea diving, he and a few of his colleagues ushered in a great era of discovery of virgin shipwrecks lost in time. Rod, you've, you've published many books. You've dived all around the world. How would you describe what you do? Mike, thanks for having me on the show. As a Scotsman, I, I do like a, a whiskey, a dram, so I think it's very apt that uh, you have me on the show. What I would describe myself as is I'm a technical diver, uh, and I dive exclusively shipwrecks. So I find shipwrecks that have been lost from World War II or World War I, dive them, survey them, and I write books about diving shipwrecks resulting from that work. That's a very modest description of what you do. I've lost count of how many books you've written. It's been at least 10, maybe more. Yeah, it's 12. 12 and books. Got, you've uh, another two on the go at the moment as well. So it's been quite a, quite a career. Yeah. I've done different things. I actually started off as a lawyer. So I was a lawyer for a long time, but I've, I was always a diver at the same time. And then I got so far into my legal career and I thought, I don't want to be a lawyer for the rest of my days and retire at age 65 and wish I'd done all these things, you know, during my life. So actually, I made a point 10 years ago. I said, no, that's enough. I'm just going to go in a different direction. And I just became a full-time writer at that point. You know, before we get into your diving career and some of the dives that you've done, do you have a good drinking story for us? Well, I do. Um, we don't tend to mix drinking with diving. And, you know, nowadays we're diving so deep and we're underwater for so long that you can't do that. But um, in Scapa Flow in the Orkney Islands at the north of Scotland, when I was an up-and-coming diver, we used to use a very rough skipper um, who was famous at the time in, in Orkney. And uh, one night he said to meet myself and my divers, are you doing anything tonight? Uh, and I said, no, not really. And he said, well, we'll go to Akeley on the island of Hoy. And I said, well, how long is that going to take to get there? And he just said, four tins of beer. So we all had to go away and buy four tins of beer each. So we drank them on the passage from the main island of Orkney out to the island of Hoy. And then we arrived and went to the, the Cayley and we'd have a brilliant time, you know, hewing and chicken with the best of them till about one o'clock in the morning. But the skipper had disappeared about an hour before. And when we went back down to the dive boat to go back to the main island of, of Orkney, um, he was lying comatose through drink on the wheelhouse floor. And we couldn't rouse him to begin with. So we finally did manage to, to rouse him. But he was very drunk. So we made a coffee for him. And he took his coffee 
Then he took his bottle of whiskey and he poured in the whiskey into his cup of coffee, started drinking it and said, okay, throw the ropes off. So we did do that. And it was the most dangerous but exciting passage from Hawaii back to the main island you could ever imagine. Not least um, in this channel between the two islands, there was a World War II wreck called the Inverlane, a massive tanker that stuck out through the, the water. And we knew it was coming, but he'd, he'd rigged up some fluorescent tubes in the wheelhouse of his, his dive boat, so he couldn't see out when the lights were on. He couldn't see out through the window, so he didn't know where he was going. So he would stick his head out the window beside every moment, every now and then, to see where he was. And then we eventually saw it in this great big V-shaped silhouette of the tanker in Berlin swept past us. So we missed it by about 20 feet. And we kept on going on uh, down the channel. And he said, oh, it'll be the Hoy Scaries next. And we all looked at the echo sounder and it was showing 10 meters away. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. I remember all the divers just looked at each other and then the boat went bang and actually hit the top of the Hoy Skerries. But he had a metal strip in his keel, so he rode the Hoy Skerries before he eventually got back to the main island. So that's, uh, that's the perils of drink. Quite a cruise. Yeah. You're famous for diving wrecks that are uh, in deep water can you um can you tell our listeners the the people who are with us today what are the challenges as a diver to dive deep well you, you have a number of challenges for example um most divers dive in standard compressed air the air you breathe compressed into the the diving cylinder and you and I are sitting in atmospheric pressure of air just now, which is made up of 79% nitrogen. It's going in and out of our bodies just now. It's inert. But the deeper you go, the greater volumes of that compressed air and compressed nitrogen you take into your body. So, for example, at 50 metres, that's about 175 feet, you're probably taking on, in each breath, six times as much air and six times as much nitrogen as you do in a breath at the surface. And that increasing amount of nitrogen gives you what's called nitrogen narcosis. And Jacques Cousteau called that the raptures of the depths. So that, and that's very dangerous. Uh, if you're diving at 50 metres in air, 175 feet in air, it's actually like having drunk half a bottle of whiskey to give you, to, to give you a rough parallel. And when things go wrong, you very quickly, one little thing triggers off a series of things. That, it's called the instant pit. And you fall into this instant pit where you're, you're affected by narcosis. And small things that you would resolve on the surface very easily become life-threatening. So that's one of the things. But you also have lots of other things. Um, at depth, if uh, you have a, a valve that you can press to let air into your dry suit to just equalise the pressure between your dry suit and the, the water pressure outside. And if that valve sticks, for example, as can happen, your diving suit, your dry suit, can overfill with air. And you've got five or ten minutes to correct the whole problem. Because if you don't correct within that time, you go feet up, and then you've lost the ability to save yourself. And you, it's called blowing up from depth. And you can go up from 50 metres and explode through the surface of the water. And if you do that, you're dead. By the time you hit the water again, you're dead. So there's lots of things like that. There's air embolism, there's the bends just everything. Diving in air is 
is really quite difficult. So to dive deep, we now use helium, which is the sort of the offshore gases that commercial divers use, which allow you to go deeper and, and it's safer and just more beneficial in a whole host of ways. Now, when you dive deep, as I understand it, your body becomes saturated with the various gases that you're breathing in. And when you're talking about you know, nitrogen, that gets absorbed into the tissues. Can you tell the folks what is required when you come up so that those nitrogen bubbles don't expand and, and do harm? Yeah, so the, the, the deeper you go, the more of these nitrogen bubbles you're taking into your body and the smaller they are. So at uh, 50 metres, the bubbles are a sixth of the size they are on the surface. So as you come up from depth, these bubbles are going to expand by a factor of six. And if you don't come up slowly enough to let these bubbles flush out your system through your lungs and breathe them out naturally, these bubbles can get lodged in your tissues, in your elbows, in your knees. They can get stuck in your spinal cord and they can go into your brain. So you imagine a bubble getting six times its size. I mean, so it's potentially fatal, often has been fatal. So you get the bends, it's called decompression sickness. And uh, I've, I've had the bends, we call it getting bent. And literally it buckles you up and bends you over with extreme pain. So you have to have a very measured ascent. So the longer you stay down and the deeper you go, the longer you've got to take to come up. So if I go to 70 metres and spend 35 metres there, I have to take two hours to come up from depth to the, before I can break the surface. Switching gears on you, what sets you on the path of researching, searching out, and diving wrecks? When, when I first started diving, like any new diver, you get all your nice new shiny kit, you go jumping into the sea, and you're blown away by the whole feeling of weightlessness. You see fish and sharks and orca anything so the first couple of years it's just it's quite spellbinding really but then after that a lot of people tend to branch out into different disciplines so some people get hooked on underwater photography other people want to do underwater video for my own part i dived a smashed up wreck that was known the wreck was there at the foot of these 200 foot high cliffs in scotland uh, and at the top of it is a an old ruined castle called Slane's Castle, which was where Bram Stoker got the inspiration for Dracula. So it's a famous castle worldwide. And there was this wreck at the bottom of it, but none of the local divers knew what it was. So this was in the early 80s. I started investigating it with my lawyer's cap on, you know, and doing some research. And I found in about 1896 a reference in the local newspaper to the SS Chicago which is coming from America, I think, in a storm and coming down the east coast of Scotland. And it was lost in a fog and it ran straight into these cliffs at the bottom of this castle. So there was actually a ball, a servant's ball going in in the castle. So all the servants were in their finery, their black, you know, their tails and their bow ties. And the ladies were in ball dresses in 1896. And they all came out and stood at the top of this cliff, looking down and saw this ship ploughed bow into the cliffs and of course the ship was put broadside against the cliffs and it was broken up and you know people were saved and it was called the SS Chicago so I actually identified that ship and I thought that's amazing you know after all these years you would think that people would have known what it was 
So I got quite uh, a buzz from doing that. And just over the years, I just tended to focus more and more on wreck diving. And then I found uh, my first, what we would call a virgin shipwreck, that nobody had ever found before, ever dived before, in about 1992 um, on air. And I remember swimming to the bridge and the telegraph was there, the compass binnacle was there. It was your like Hollywood style shipwreck about five miles off the coast here. And I was just blown away uh, by it and went on to identify that ship. And it was actually sunk uh, about three miles away from its reported position where it sunk in World War II. During your career, you have dived probably countless wrecks now. And I understand that there is one that stands out in your mind amongst the others. And that is the, the search for, is it called the Cremere? Yeah, that's right, the SS Cremeur. It's a, a very special wreck. To me, it's a local wreck, and I had uh, contact with one of the survivors from the shipwreck in, in World War II. What set you on, the, on that search? I'd, I'd always known um, that that ship was out there. Um, you, you, people don't really know about this, but there's a thing called the Battle of the East Coast. It's the east coast of Britain in World War II. And that's because uh, ships coming from America, from Canada, from the British Empire as was, from all these places with war goods, would converge on the west coast of Scotland and form up in convoy. They would then have to go up round the north of Scotland, past Orkney, and they would fight their way down the east coast of Britain, through Scotland, Newcastle, to, uh, and down to London, for example, with their vital war cargoes. And Germany, uh, the Nazis, had actually overrun Norway by this stage. So the Nazi airfields were just 200, 250 miles away to the east. So there was this tremendous battle, and all these convoys knew they were going to have to fight their way down the east coast. So we have a, a lot of shipwrecks from World War II five miles off the coast here, because that's where the, the swept channel was, which is where it was swept daily for mines. Uh, it was marked by boys, and on the outside of that channel was the Northern Mine Barrage and the East Coast Barrier, 250,000 mines sewn from London all the way up to Fraserburgh and then up to Orkney to stop German U-boats getting in to, to sink the shipping. But of course, the, the, the mine barrier was no use for air German bombers. And so we've lost a lot of ships up and down here. So I'd always known about the Cremure, just historically, I knew it was out there, but I didn't know the exact position. And it was 15, 20 miles offshore, in the North Sea. It was just, it was too deep. It was in 250 feet of water and it was too far offshore for the dive boats we started off with. Then once we started diving using helium uh, and particularly then moved on to rebreathers, this wreck suddenly became in focus again because I knew that we could go out and successfully dive it. And so I set up a search to go and find it. How did that search start? I think it started in about 2010. And I'd got an approximate position from a fisherman that I, I, I deal with, a, a lovely chap, who had said he'd snagged his nets and something out there. And we, we got an approximate position. But uh, often the fishermen here in Scotland, a lot of them still use DECA, which is quite inaccurate for position finding compared to modern GPS. So uh, I set up a, a dry search for the, the ship. So we knew roughly where we were going. Um, so we were out there with magnetometers and echo sounders, two boats, and we just started mowing the lawn. And this box, we'd worked at a box for about a mile or two square either side. 
and we just uh, kind of buoyed it off a section and started mowing the lawn. Then eventually uh, we drove over this massive shipwreck lying in the bottom in 70 metres of water. That's 250 feet in, in old money. What so devices were you using? Uh, well, an echo sounder um, is on your boat and it's a little pinger that sends a, a beam down the seabed. It hits a hard object like the seabed or at the top of a wreck and it comes back up and it's processed on the boat. And then that gives you a picture, a scrolling picture of what's on the seabed. Just a, just a bottom line, basically. But you know, if you see something shooting up 10 metres and then down again, you've got a, something in the seabed. And also a magnetometer uh, detects, you tow that as a, a fish behind your boat and it detects any change in the magnetic signature of the earth. For example, uh, a large metal shipwreck would change the magnetic signature and it gives you then a readout and you know you're something large and metal on the seabed. So that's how we find wrecks. How did you feel when all of a sudden those magnetometers and that echo device revealed well, the wreck? Just excited because, you know, I, I, that the name of that shipwreck had been in the back of my mind for 15 years. And it, always, it was one of the things that I always wanted to do, you know, like mountaineers want to go and climb a specific mountain and, or a specific route up a specific mountain. And that was my own little Everest or whatever. And I, I finally thought, well, we've got it. And now we've got the gear. We can go down and have a, a good look at this. So the next step, set up a dive? Yeah, basically the following weekend. Um, and I have a, a group of about 10 divers like myself, roughy tufty divers. We all dive helium. We all use rebreathers and we're all good with boats in the sea. So we had two boatloads went out and we dropped a, a weighted shot line, we call it, with a boy at the top, dropped that down beside the wreck, got ready. Um, we can only dive at slack water when the, the tide goes slack for about half an hour or an hour every six hours. And then we went, start following this line down into the blackness. How deep is the wreck? It's uh, 70 metres, 250 feet, something like that. But our underwater visibility plays, you know, a huge part. In Trot Lagoon, in the Pacific, you can see for 200 feet all around you all the time. In Scotland, in the North Sea, you can often only see for five feet or 10 feet around you. So you've got this little bubble when you sweep your torch around that you can see in the beam of your torch for 20 feet. So it's always a bit nerve wracking when you go down the line, you know, hand over hand, you're shining your torch down into the depths because you don't know what you're going to see, which part of the shipwreck. There may even be nets snagged in the wreck or billowing up into you. You may end up five feet away from a big net. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen. Now, how do you plan for a dive that uh, appears to be that dangerous? Well, we, we, we work out, um, we would dive in a, a team, two teams. So um, we had two boats, each dropping a shot line, and each had four divers. So that was eight divers we're going to put into the water, one towards the bow, one team towards the stern. And, you know, in that sort of darkness, all you see is the other divers' light. So it's like the Star Wars lightsaber sweeping around in the darkness. So you know where people are. You get to the, finally you get and touch the wreck, and we put a big strobe and clip it onto the downline. So, you know, we use really powerful strobes, like the top of, 
power station chimneys. So when they flash, they light up quite a lot around about them. And then what we do is we can put a reel, clip a reel around the downline, and then we can reel off the downline because the downline is safety for something like this because you know your ascent is clear of any snags like nets. And we also string extra cylinders of breathing gas as a bailout if something goes wrong with your rebreather on the downline. So we can then just, we can reel away, go and explore, and then we can just wind up our reel and basically just follow the line back to the big downline, which is your escape route to the surface. Now with that limited visibility, uh, we always hear about divers always diving in at least uh, pairs for safety. But in that limited visibility, how realistic is it that your buddy diver is actually going to see you in distress or be able to help you? Uh, well, there's a whole language of uh, light signals, for example. So we can give light signals to each other, uh, and it, you can perfectly understand what's going. And if you've got four divers, you'd break into two twos. So one can stay within almost touching distance of the other. But as technical divers, you know, they, they say that you're diving alone, but just with somebody in, in the close proximity of someone, so that if something goes wrong, you have to sort your own kit out, sort yourself out, because there's quite little that um, uh, your buddy can do to help you. If you black out, the most he can do is take you to the surface, but we've got an hour until we hit the surface. So there, there is that thing it's quite difficult to to do. So take us on the descent. You're kitted up, you go over the side, and then what do you see and what do you experience? Yeah, so we, we tend to go down the downline. So you just put your finger and thumb around the downline so you don't pull yourself down the line because you could actually pull the, the weighted shot off the wreck and then you could end up in a, you know on the seabed or and not know where you are. So you tend to just have finger and thumb like that and you just go down the line swimming gently down the line, and you feel um, all the water pressure starts to squeeze you. The, the old you know, deep-sea divers used to call it the squeeze, and it compresses everything in your body, and your suit, your dive suit, compresses into your body. So you have to bleed some air into your suit. We have a little cylinder with a, a connecting whip that comes to your suit, so it's just for suit inflation. You're inflating your suit a little bit to keep your suit off your body to avoid the squeeze. You're feeling the pressure on your ears, quite intense pressure, so you have to pop your ears like you are on a plane. And you're going down and down, and as your suit compresses, you get heavy because you you lose all the buoyancy in your suit and in your, your wings, so you start to sink faster. So we have called buoyancy wings in our, our units, our, our rebreathers, so you have to put a little gas into your buoyancy wing just to stop you descending too fast because you could get a runaway descent and you just get faster and faster as you go down. And you're very aware of, you know, looking at your computer, which lights up, and you see the depth scrolling down, you know, 50 feet down, 100 feet down, 150 feet down, pitch black. You can see nothing except your diver's torch. 200 feet, 225 feet, and you're shining your torch down the line in the darkness, looking for that first glimpse of the, the wreck. And then finally about five, ten feet away, you see rusted metal. And you come and you stop above the wreck and then you try and look around. And which part of the wreck have you landed on? You can only see five or ten feet. Who's to know where you are? So then 
you're putting your, you know, it's a little bit of activity, putting your strobe on the line, putting your reel on, and then you're ready to just reel off the, the downline and go and find something. And usually you'll find the side of a ship or something like that, and that'll give you a bit of an orientation, and then you'll see something of a ship you recognise. So when you went down, what was the first thing you saw on the wreck? I saw the the combing, the, the hatch rim of a hold. So she was a cargo ship. I knew about that. And then I saw that she was actually split in two parts. I came to the end of one part. So I knew she'd broken her back on the surface because I couldn't see the other parts. I knew the other parts a little bit further away in the darkness. And so already I'm thinking that um, this is a war wreck. So I, then I found the side of the ship and I followed the side of the ship, turned out to be aft, until I saw a defensive gun, like a three-inch or a five-inch gun on a platform at the stern. So a lot of merchant ships in World War II had what's called DEMS guns. That's D-E-M-S, defensively equipped merchant ship guns. And as soon as I saw that, I knew that's it. It's, it's World War II. Um, and she's been attacked and sunk. And then I saw other things in the ship, and I knew it was a creamier. Because sometimes the, the identities are mixed up. And how'd you feel? I felt really good, um, but one of the divers had had a problem with his rebreather on the way down, and it started flashing red lights, so he'd had to go up. So there were, were actually three of us together on the on the bottom, and we knew one of the guys hadn't came down. So this was about 100 feet down. So he'd given us a signal, and he said he was okay, that he was going to go to the surface, but he signaled the three of us should continue to go down. So in the back of my mind, I was a little bit concerned about him. But uh, I was still really pleased that finally, after all these years, I'd been there and seen this wreck and touched it. In your research, how did she go down? So she was in a, a convoy of 31 ships that had left the Firth of Forth beside Edinburgh. And it was to go up the east coast of Scotland, round past Orkney, and then go across to Nova Scotia, where it was gonna, the ships were going to pick up war supplies, and then they'd return heavily laden back across the Atlantic with all their vital war supplies for the, the British war effort. So they'd left, in 1940, the convoy had left um, the Edinburgh area. And they were heading north in two columns, and the Creamier was leading the port column. And they'd go up about 100 miles north into their journey, basically off where I live in Stonehaven in northeast of Scotland, when the convoy was attacked by German torpedo bombers flying from Norway. And she took one torpedo in her aft port side, uh, and nobody knew that she had broken her back at that time. There was a crew of 42, and she went down within two or three minutes because she was what's called light. That means her holds were empty. And when a ship is light with no cargo in it, these holds become vast Olympic-sized swimming pools, and they fill rapidly with water. There's no buoyancy. The ship goes down quickly. So uh, she went down in two or three minutes, and there were only uh, four, uh, sorry, 12 survivors of that lot. So then in the period that followed, I actually posted in my blog that I, I dived the SS Creamier. And about a month later, I got this email in capitals and bright red. Dear Mr. MacDonald, my name is Noel Blacklock. I was a radio officer on the SS Creamier. I see you've been diving my old ship. I'd very much like to talk to you about it. I'm the last living survivor. 
So that led on to this whole contact that grew arms and legs with the last living survivor of this ship. What was it like to talk to him? I, I, I loved it. You know, he was 91 at that time. And he said, I'm going to get on a plane and come up to Aberdeen uh, and meet you. I'm going to take my wife and I'd like to meet you and hear all about my old ship. So I, I said I would pick him up at Aberdeen Airport. And um, I said, how will I recognise you? And he said uh, that, uh, oh, it'll be easy because my wife and I will be the only two people in wheelchairs. And I said, look, I've got a big four by four truck. Are you going to be okay with that? And he said, oh, yeah, it'll be no problem, Mr. McDonald. So I arrived at the appointed time at Aberdeen Airport in the arrivals hall. And here are two old, frail people being wheeled out of the by British Airways staff on wheelchairs. So I walked up to them and said, Noel, is it? And he said, Mr. McDonald. And he stood up and shook my hand. And he said, delight to meet you. We don't really need these wheelchairs. It just makes traveling so much easier. So, <laughs> so this is the British Airways staff were pushing him around and got all his gear and he didn't really need the wheelchair. So the Royal Navy are famous for that sort of cheeky impish thing. And, and he still had that sort of thing. So I loved it. Um, so I took him to uh, this little fishing village called Cove, where the ship that was leading the starboard column, it had been attacked by German bombers, hit badly. It was just getting dark, wet and fire. And as the crew were abandoning ship, it's called the SS Trabartha, the German plane came back and started strafing the survivors in the, the lifeboats, which he thought was very bad form, you know. So... Noel and I struck up a, a lovely um, relationship. I was very proud to call him my friend. Um, and he gave me all his survivor accounts that he had typed and given to the Admiralty during World War II. And that was really helpful in understanding the, the whole thing. So his story is that um, he had been on radio watch. He'd just come off and he'd gone down to the mess and he was eating scrambled eggs and spam or something like that. And there was this almighty thump, and he was thrown thrown to the ground in the mess, and the the lights went out. So he ran to his cabin, got his life preserver, put it on back to front by mistake in his panic. Then he ran out up a step set of steps to the back of the superstructure, and he was looking at the aft part of the ship, and the the two holds were already underwater, and he just saw the top of the gun at the stern pointing out the water. I, that I saw in my dive. And just then, the ship was going down so quickly, something hit him on the back of the head. Something swung round and hit him on the head. He was knocked unconscious. And then he came to underwater with his life preserver bobbing him up to the surface. And he hit the surface and he just saw the bow was upright, hanging in the water, and then it just started to go down right in front of him. You could see it there. And he saw the bell on the forecastle just go under as the ship finally went under. So he was in the, the sea for, I don't know, something like 30 minutes. And our sea in the North Sea, it's very cold. It's plus six degrees centigrade. So he was in big trouble. He lost the power of his arm and legs, which is cold water shock, we would call it nowadays. So he was in the water. And then eventually a raft came past with three people in the raft. So he shouted to the people in the raft and they came over and they hauled him into the, the, the raft, and then they bobbed around for another hour or two in the, in the sea, in the darkness of night, uh, until uh, a Dutch ship, the Oberon, came past, and they heard the cries and stopped, 
and picked up uh, the people from the raft, took them back to Aberdeen, and he was put into the fishermen's mission and survived. So his great warmth for the, the people of Aberdeen, because they treated him so beautifully, because he was covered in oil and filth from the sea and of a ship sinking. And they cleaned him up, they gave him food, dry clothes, and put him into a bed. And he remembered that the sheets were just pure, brilliant white, and he got to sleep. So that was fascinating. So um, about three months after I dealt with Noel, um, I got an email from somebody in Ireland. And this lady said, Dear Mr. MacDonald, I see you, you've been diving the SS Creamure. My father was a survivor of the SS Creamure. Uh, he died of natural causes in 1963 when I was 16. I was too young to ever ask about his war. And like all the veterans, he didn't speak about the war. Is there anything you can tell me um, about my dad's old ship? So I said, I can do better than just tell you about it. I'll put you in touch with Noel Blacklock, who's the last living survivor of your dad's old ship. So I put the two of them in touch and uh, they swapped stories. And it turned out that her father was one of the crew of three in the raft that pulled Noel Blacklock out of the water back on Armistice Day 1940. So after all these years, 75 years or something like that, can you imagine meeting somebody that your dad saved? I mean, it's astonishing. And it all started with your search for that wreck. That's right. And a little blog posting uh, about it, because I actually, um, I just, without thinking, I just put two lines in my internet blog, and I got the tonnage of the ship wrong. And uh, no, correct me, Miss McDonald. I think you made a mistake about the tonnage of the creamier. I should know. I was the radio officer. <laughs> so he gave me a ticket off in a lovely, beautiful, gentlemanly way. When was the last time that you dove the wreck? Um, about six years ago, something like that, we went out. And uh, this was a rare occurrence when we got really lovely underwater visibility. We could see for 30 or 40 feet underwater this time. So we found where the, the ship had cracked open. It split it and because the, the other two parts were about 30 feet apart on the seabed. And where it had cracked, it had cracked open the galley. So we were able to look in and see china, white china, strewn all over the place, cups, saucers, bowls, dishes, all that. So we continued on and got to the, the bridge. We looked in the bridge, and you could see the ship's telegraph was there, the big helm, the steering wheel. And then we got to the bow, and by that time, it was time to come up. We'd had, I don't know, 30 minutes on the bottom when you were looking at two hours of an, on ascent. But then the, the diver was diving with Paul Haynes started. I was, I'd, start, I'd signaled, look, it's time to go up. We swam across the line and we we're starting to go up. I was recovering my strobe off the, the line and clipping it off my kit. And I saw Paul 15, you know, 30 or 40 feet beneath me. And he was waving like mad at me. And I couldn't work out what his signal was. It wasn't one of the, our standard diver signals. And he seemed to be banging on something. I, I, I didn't understand it. So about an hour or two hours later, we surfaced and got onto the, into the boat and he went, Rod, I found the bell. So I said, so he'd left it quite properly in the wreck. I said, Paul, there's only one place that bell is going. It's going to go to the survivor, no black clock. Because otherwise, another dive boat will eventually come and it'll be taken off the wreck and it'll end up in somebody's garage who has no connection with this, this ship. So 
we went back the following weekend and we managed to put the downline within 10 feet of the bell because we knew where it was. Um, we recovered the bell and then we we cleaned it up. And one Saturday morning, we left Stonehaven at seven o'clock in the morning, driving down the hill from the north of Scotland to London, where Noel lived. We arrived there about half past three in the afternoon and rang his doorbell and he came in. Oh, Mr. McDonald, delight to see you. Come on in. And I think we got some of his homemade nettle wine and we saw his medals. And then we said to him, Noel, we've got something for you in the car. So he didn't know about this. It was a complete surprise. So I went out to the car and I took this big, heavy thing with a blanket wrapped over the top of it into the house and said, this is for you, Noel. Took it off and gave him the bell that he last saw in 1940 on the forecastle of the ship as it was sinking beneath the water. What was the look on his face when he saw it? He was astonished, absolutely astonished. He, you know, he was interested in the ship, but he never dreamt that he would see something after all these years that he saw on Armistice Day in 1940 when he was sunk. And, uh, you know, he, he had, because of the arrival of the internet, he'd spent time searching for other crewmen off his old ships. He'd never found anyone, they were always dead. And then to bump into me accidentally, and suddenly I turn up like, um, like Superman, as it were, at his door with the um, with the bell of his old ship, and it was quite interesting because a year or two later, I was asked to talk in England at this major diving conference called Eurotech, uh, and I said to the organisers, "I'm going to talk about the SS Creamure. Are you okay if I give the floor over for the last 15 minutes of my talk to a special guest?" And the, the organisers said, "Yeah, what is it, Ron?" I said, "I'm not going to tell you." You know, just wait and see. So I stood up for my talk, maybe two or 300 people in the hall. I gave my talk about the Creamure. And then I said, now Eurotech, I'd like to put your hands together and welcome a very special guest to Eurotech. And so Noel was sitting in his wheelchair at the edge of the stage, just out of, out of eyesight for the crowd. So I went across and said, Noel, do you want me to wheel you on? And he said, no, Mr. McDonald, I'm standing for this. And he stood up and he walked on to the podium and he stood there Beside me, we had the bell beside the podium, and he told his story of what it's like to be torpedoed to these two or 300 people in the audience. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Even the big tough divers with beards and all that, they were all crying. It was an amazing effect. He lost a lot of mates in that attack. He did, but he was quite sanguine about it. I think if you went through the war, um, you got kind of used to that. I've talked to many survivors uh, from being torpedoed, and some were torpedoed two or three times in the same convoy, you know. So it wasn't that big a surprise to be torpedoed. It was the war, you know, casualties of war, my dear. I want to shift gears on you. In all modesty, you are a renowned underwater explorer. What do you think makes a good explorer? What what qualities do you see out there that make somebody... um, good at doing something like like this? Well, um, I think the first thing is you've got to be a risk taker um, because, you know, I was, when I was, I was a lifeboatman for quite a number of years and the, the trainer, I remember him saying clearly, Rod, you're a risk taker, but it's managing that risk. So you, you've got to be willing to accept an element of danger, but you've got to be able to manage that. And the sort of things I do to me now, 
because I've been doing it so long. You know, I'm kind of used to this level of risk. But for somebody starting, going for their first deep dive, you know, on a you know unknown shipwreck in the darkness with nets billowing up, it's uh, it's quite scary. So you've got to be a risk taker. You've got to be trained. You've got to be in charge of your discipline. Like the guys that you know, Summit K2 and Everest, they know what they're doing. They are risk takers, but they are at the top of their game. So you have to be in that uh, area. You have to have a desire to go out and explore and to find things. There's some people that exploration means nothing to them. They're happy just to walk, to, you know, stay, stay in their houses, in their ordinary life and uh, not do anything like this and watch on TV. That's absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with that. But as an explorer, you have to have the desire to go out and see things that people have never seen, to go places that people have never been before, to do things that people have never done before. And then lastly, for me, uh, I I really like the, the history side of things. Uh, to me, the technical diving I do is really just transport mechanism to get to see the things I want to see. So I, I like to understand shipwrecks. I like to add to the collective knowledge that man has about this particular aspect of World War II. Because at the moment, there's only a handful of Scottish divers here looking at these particular shipwrecks. Uh, and if we don't keep these memories alive, who does? The memory of the Cree Muir has been kept alive because I've got no story. And, you know, the bell and... No, sadly, passed on, but the, the bell is coming back to our local area. We'll go to the museum. I've got all his black and white photographs. I've got his admiralty statements. And his whole story is preserved, and I was privileged to meet him before he passed. So I think it's important that we recover and keep that sense of wonder and keep that knowledge alive. When you talk about risk-taking, managing the risk, when I was going through a mountaineering school, the uh, the instructor told us about managing risk. It's always the, you had to measure the risk of fall and the consequences of the fall and uh, gauge those. But like you say, it's not something that you can just go from the dead stop to climbing K2 or diving a technical dive at 250 feet. It takes a process to acquire the skills to not be reckless. And maybe that's the idea. It's risk management versus being just simply reckless and foolhardy in going out there and doing something dumb that gets somebody killed. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, you know, you, you just don't, you can't fast track these sort of skills. The same for mountaineering. You can't fast track proper mountaineering skills that you can uh, you know, do serious mountaineering with. The same with diving. You can't fast track uh, being a technical diver. You've got to go through the ranks as a single tank air diver. You then transfer to using nitrox and different you know, basic gas blends. And then you transfer to technical diving and all the skills that you need. And then you go on to uh, rebreather diving. Uh, these rebreathers that we use nowadays are they're wonderful pieces of kit, but they can kill you in so many ways if you don't manage them. Um, they say that you know, diving a single tank of air is like riding a bike and diving a rebreather using Trimix with helium in it and deep dives is like flying a jet plane. Um, it's, it's that level of complexity. And like flying a jet plane, there's many ways that 
you can kill yourself in a rebreather. Touch wood. But it is, you know, like you say, it's a way to get to see things that others wouldn't and experience things that other would, others wouldn't. I, I'm a operational diver, but I can recall when I first went underwater, when I was learning how to dive, the sensation of breathing underwater was, uh, it was just an extraordinary feeling. It was just so strange. And now I'm used to it, but when you first go underwater and you feel all of a sudden, I don't have to go up. And you could take that breath and then you could stay there and see all the uh, all the wonderful sea life and that sort of thing. That's exactly right. I remember vividly the first time, it was just my first training in a swimming pool in Peterhead, putting on the mask, putting a regulator in your, in your mouth, fins on, flopping in the water and going, wow, that is amazing. Right. Also, as part of your your work as an explorer and part of your career as an explorer, you do a lot of work with the Explorers Club, do you not? Yes. Um, I was inducted into the Explorers Club in uh, 2015 as a fellow. Uh, I'm also a patron, one of 10 patrons of the uh, Great Britain and Ireland chapter of the Explorers Club. The Explorers Club is an amazing uh, setup. And basically, they take uh, explorers from all different disciplines, from uh, mountaineers to Arctic explorers to hot air balloonists to divers to spacemen and all the all the great uh, firsts in world history or recent world history uh, in the 20th century have been by Explorers Club members. So Roald Amundsen uh, first the South Pole was an Explorers Club member carrying Explorers Club flag. Uh, Captain uh, Peary first the North Pole he was carrying the Explorers Club flag as well. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were members of the Explorers Club, first to the surface of the moon. So the first to the summit of Everest, Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing, Explorers Club members as well, carrying flags. So the Explorers Club is based in New York and it's got a pink granite plinth where they list all these famous firsts. And at the very bottom, there's a space left just now. And that will be hopefully first to the surface of Mars when uh, Elon Musk gets there in a few years' time. You know, that that uh, brings up a question, too, about, you know, because we talked about what makes a good explorer, the work of the Explorers Club. You know, in uh, in these strange modern times, it seems like the, I don't know, the urge to explore, the urge to engage in adventure seems to have, maybe it's getting drowned out by all the, chaotic noise, but how do we reinvigorate people's imagination and the the recognition of explorers and motivating the next generation of, of explorers? Yeah, you've got a point. Um, there's a feeling, um, I think, with the generations coming on that almost everything's been done, seen and done. But I can assure you from the, the diving perspective, that is not the case. There are still tens of thousands of shipwrecks out there which have not been found or explored. And at some point, there'll be another quantum leap forward in technology, like there was when we got access to helium and to rebreathers. There'll be this other quantum leap forward in technology. And, you know, the next generations can have as much fun doing virgin exploration of the seabed and of shipwrecks as I've had over the last 20 or 30 years. 
Something that um, I'm endeavoring to do through these podcasts is to give people who are not out there getting dirty, getting wet, getting cold or hungry, exploring a sense of what it's like to actually experience it. Like that experience when you first saw that wreck, the Khmer. And it's just something that you cannot, um, it, it's difficult to explain because it's a feeling. It's, um, but you just can't get that from the internet or video games. Just trying to translate that so people who don't do that understand it. No, that's right. Um, there is nothing like being, on, being there, having the wind in your face and the, the rain in your hair and all that. And just seeing these momentous pieces of history. Like, I, I, you know, I don't know if your audience is primarily an American audience, I suppose, but we have some famous warships from World War II. HMS Prince of Wales, Churchill's favourite battleship, was sunk 200 miles north of Singapore in World War II by Japanese torpedo bombers and high-altitude bombers. Famous, famous shipwreck. It took Churchill across the Atlantic for the Atlantic Conference with Roosevelt. And uh, it's lying there, you know, 200 miles north of Singapore. And to go down and see and spend weeks diving on this piece of history and getting to understand it is incredible. And also, we, I've been heavily involved with another shipwreck, HMS Hampshire, which is an armoured cruiser um, that left Scapa Flow in World War I to go up around the north of Norway carrying Lord Kitchener, who was the British Secretary of State for War. Uh, and it was it ran into a minefield uh, just north of Orkney, and it sunk uh, with all but a handful of survivors in terrible circumstances. So I've been involved with that one now for the last five years in quite some depth. And, uh, you know, just seeing it, and we've been surveying it and using this new modern 3D photogrammetry to record the trek, the ship in 3D, so that arche marine archaeologists who sit um, in armchairs, for example, or a computer, they, they'll be able to fly around with their screens this wreck in 3D that they can never see or touch. So we've also done a bit of it in virtual reality. So you put on your VR goggles, and then you can go and you can actually walk around the, the wreck. So we're bringing something to a more modern generation as well. So there's, there's lots happening like that. Honestly, it's, there's still a vast field out there to explore and get involved in. Very cool. Ron, it's been a pleasure. Uh, just seeing the stuff that you do is just fantastic. It has to be really something to be down there that deep. And then all of a sudden, out of the depths, out of the gloom, comes this wreck that, that nobody's seen before. Got to be a cool feeling. It is. It's, it's what I die for. I, I don't particularly like so much going back to see wrecks that um, I've dived many times before. It's the, it's the, it's the next piece of excitement, is, is the next virgin wreck for me. Do you have any new books in the works? I do. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the Pacific diving at Truck Lagoon and Palau and Guadalcanal, places like that. And it, it struck me that these are all legacies of the, the American Fast Carrier Task Force 58. And it's an incredible story, the whole way that Task Force 58 brought together 12 carriers initially, latterly 17 fast carriers. And they swept west, you know, smashing truck, taking out Palau, the Philippines, the Mariana Islands, Saipan, Iwo Jima, 
Okinawa, all these places before eventually raiding Japan itself before the, the nuclear bomb was dropped. And there was one book in about 1967 by Clark Reynolds called The Fast Carriers. But it's a long time ago. And uh, since then, nobody has, has ever kept the story of this amazing piece of American history, naval history alive. We see the a lot about the Pacific, you know, US Marines storming the beaches at Saipan and Tarawan, lots of films about that aspect of it. But nobody's ever really told the story properly of the fast carriers and what they did. They paved the way for all these amphibious assaults. So I've got a book coming out in September called Task Force 58, surprisingly. And it's just the, well, it's, we're in the edit process just now. It's a massive book, about 400 pages. But this is going to tell properly the story of the American fast carrier strike force as it swept through the Pacific. Now, for folks that want to follow your work, how can we, um, how can people follow you and keep in touch with what you're doing? Yeah, so I have a, a website, surprisingly called rod-mcdonald.com. So you can have a look at that. I have a blog in there, so that date. I've also got a Facebook page, Rod McDonald page, so you can follow that. Well, Rod, it's been a great to talk to you. You have many stories. I hope we'll have you back later to tell us some more of your adventures underwater. I have lots more stories. I, I could spend hours telling them as well. So, But it's been good fun. So thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I love your podcast. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again. Share a glass of whiskey and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.